Welcome everybody to another session with a live expert. And of course, I have an expert today, Hitin Shah, somebody I look up to. He's active on Twitter. He's founded well-known companies like Kissmetrics, Crazy Egg, FY, and most recently Neuro. He's helped thousands of founders and he's a founder at heart. Hitin, how are things going with you today? Things are good. Yeah. Can't complain. Nobody's listening. Well, super excited to to jump right in uh, to talk about this, particularly around your pivot with FYI to to Nira. I mean, I want to jump right into that. I mean, FYI, there's this pitch that you have for that find documents in three clicks or less. Can you share a little bit about about that story of how that pivot came about? I know you share that in your newsletter, but it's just an interesting story that you have on that that particular shift from FYI to Nira. Yeah, for sure. So for about a couple of years, we were building an enterprise search tool that integrated with about 24 different tools. So G Suite, Google Drive, uh, Dropbox, Box, Confluence, you name it, we did our best to integrate with it. We even got a Miro integration and a bunch of others, uh, Airtable, anything we could integrate with that had enough of the Matura API that we could. Uh, and then what we did is we actually created a really unique experience to find your documents. That's why we said find your documents in three clicks or less, because that implies that you don't have to search for a keyword. So we had created a feed in the middle of the page that was the core of the product that allowed you to basically see all the items that were changing that you had access to. And so you could find things that are recently changing that people are working on really quickly. What we had discovered when we did a bunch of customer development and research to understand what problems people have, and more importantly, how they were finding documents, the ways that they were finding documents is by actually asking other people, hey, can you send me a link again to that document you shared with me last week? Hey, you know that doc you created? What was the name of it? I'm looking for it right now. And countless other statements like that that we still constantly hear at work. And so what we decided to do is something really unique. We decided to build the whole interface oriented around basically as if it was a social network. And what that means is we had faces everywhere. So there was a sidebar that showed you all the people you collaborated with in your company and outside your company. And so we had a feed, we had a sidebar with people, and we haven't seen any product kind of really think of content and documents and information you're trying to find at work in that way. And people loved it. And it was even a Chrome extension that opened in a new tab and it still exists right now. We might be shutting it down for a little bit. Don't know when it'll come back up. If we do shut it down, I use it every day. I know, I know a bunch of other people that love using it every day. So basically we had a customer really early, basically walk us through like using it. So this was a, actually a startup office in San Francisco. There were about 50 people, if I recall correctly. And we went to their office, my co-founder Marie and I did, and it was supposed to be like a normal user research session where we just watched him being the CEO of the company, use our product and kind of give us feedback. What ended up happening is he opened the tool, he looked at the sidebar, he scrolled down a little bit, he found someone that he's, he had this like moment where he's like, why does, why does this person show up? Then he clicked on the person and all of a sudden like, he saw that they have access to a bunch of his documents because, you know, our tool was designed around you click the person, you can see all the things you have shared with the person and you can pick one to open. And he's like, 
did you do this? Did FYI do this? And we're like, no, we actually don't change permissions. We don't give anyone access to anything that, you know, they already don't have access to through Google or whatever tools you use. So then he looked a little bit like concerned and he's like, so that means that this person actually has access to these documents. He said, yeah. And he's like, well, this person shouldn't have access to these documents. And we said, okay, sure. That's kind of your, your business, right? Not our business. We're just trying to help you find documents. And then he basically told us after we left that he stayed up all night, you know, being a little dramatic about it and basically started finding people in our tool that shouldn't have access to documents, then clicking and going to the other tools and removing their access. And it was a very cumbersome, tedious process because this, this is not easy to do at all, even today. And so that was like one of those moments where like you almost get this experience where someone is using your product in a way that you unexpected, like something that was completely unexpected and you watch them use it. And they said a lot of things about it that were in our case, very emotional. He basically had a lot of like adverse reactions to this experience, but he was thankful that our tool existed because that enabled him to find this sort of unauthorized access that was happening to his documents. And so that was really one of the big key points that caused us to want to kind of do our pivot and realize that there's almost bigger pain, not even almost, we now know it's more than almost, a larger pain than finding documents is actually managing who has access to them and basically taking care of that. So seeing who has access Mm -hmm. and then taking care of removing that access, modifying and changing it in whatever ways make the most sense so that you can reduce the risk of your information as a company, stuff that's proprietary from getting out. That is such a great story because there's that emotion about fear, like your company information getting out. So I'm guessing it was you and Marie who was like doing this customer interview. Yeah. Was it like an instant light bulb moment where it's like, Marie, we got to do that. <laughs> we got to, we got to shift. Or was it like a, what happened next? You, you, this happened, this story happens. Did you go back to your office and like uh, map it up? Yeah. So we take a lot of notes. We pay attention very closely. We try to understand what he did and why he discovered that. We made sure it wasn't our fault because we like to make sure of that too. But at the end of the day, it was one of several data points that led us to want to change directions for our core business. And so the couple other data points, the one big one was that at companies that are larger, the IT department has locked down access to these tools through OAuth. What that means is an employee is unable to just sign up for a tool, connect it to Google, and then get our fantastic search experience. So the larger a company gets, the more likely it is that IT has locked down an employee's ability to sign up for other tools through like Google, for example. The way our product works, it needs you to sign up for these other tools or sign into these other tools and connect our tool to these other tools. That's how FYI worked. And so we started talking to IT teams and we started hearing that they actually are the ones that are managing who has access to various documents in these tools. Because what ends up happening is IT gets requests from people all across the company for these types of things. A lot of times they get requests from executives who are looking to basically make sure nobody has access to their documents. 
if you know someone tries to get access to a document or request access via the Google dialogue, uh, when you like click a link or something, you don't have access and it's an executive's document, then the IT team kind of gets a request from the executive, like what's going on. And those are the kinds of things that we started hearing related to access control of individual documents. And then the problem is even worse because more and more tools let you share outside of the tool from something inside the tool, just with a link, very much like Google. And basically a lot of the permissioning involves not just someone explicitly being on the document, but it could be that anyone in the company can access the document if they have a link. So that's like a setting or anyone with the link can access the document regardless of what company they're in because it's a public link. So there are things like this that we learned. And then it goes further where like one thing that's rampant, that's not easy to solve or maintain is this idea of employee personal accounts, even like vendor personal accounts, uh, service providers, other folks are using having access to your documents. And those personal accounts, you don't know whether they have two-factor turned on. As an IT person, you don't know how secure they are. A lot of these personal accounts are involved in uh, breaches, not necessarily the personal accounts themselves, but like the person's password because they signed up with their personal account to some other service. That service got breached. What if they're using the same password across tools, right? Which a lot of people do do because it's hard to remember passwords and not everyone uses a password manager. And, you know, the whole list kind of goes on. So it's almost like basically all this collaboration that's going on, which is fantastic and makes life a lot easier. In fact, we're on this call using this tool because of a link you put in a calendar <laughs> invite and I could just get in. And if someone else had that link, they could probably get in too, That's true. right? So this ability is amazing because it makes using products really easy. Mm-hmm. You don't have to sign up. Someone can share it with you. The cost of it today is that visibility mm-hmm. of who has access to it, what type of access exists for it. And as we dug in, like it's clear as day that like on the hierarchy of needs of collaboration, we're doing all the stuff higher above, but the thing that doesn't exist at the bottom is basically this complete visibility into every single item, mm. every single piece of IP, every single thing that's created in your company right. and who has access to it. So that's that's kind of the discovery we made. And, you know, we don't share the interface today, but I know you've seen it because you're a user, customer, right. whatever you want to call it. And it's a very unique product today. Nothing like it exists today to like help you manage who has access to what. And, you know, like really it's all because of the customer development and the Mm. research we did starting with that conversation. And then it just snowballed. So I would say that like, it wasn't one of those like, Hey, we heard this. We need to go react to it right away. It was more like, Hey, we heard this. That's kind of weird. What more can we learn about this kind of problem? And we already had like a ton of notes from the work we'd done in the past in terms of customer development. So what we actually did is we pulled up all the old interview notes Mm. and started looking for words like, who said permissions? Who said access? Who said this is annoying? Who said this is a problem? And we started really digging in there and we got a lot of narratives, very similar to some of the things that I'm sharing with you that are all backed by customer research. And then from there, we started thinking about how do we solve this problem in the best way possible. Really, really fascinating. And now I want to jump a little bit into this, you know, all this customer research and interview that you and Marie did. 
it kind of it helps you pivot into what Nira is today. I want to talk about something that you shared on your newsletter, also on Twitter, around the three types of pivots, because this sounds like, um, correct me if I'm wrong, a problem and a product pivot. And can you can you talk about the three types, the customer, the product, and the... Yeah, there's a problem pivot, a customer pivot, and product pivot. A problem pivot is you're solving basically a different problem. And it could be for the same customer, it could be for a different customer, but you're solving a different problem than the original one that you found. In a way, the problem pivot is one of the things we actually did. So we were solving a problem of finding documents. Now we're solving a problem of who has access to the document and managing that access. We call it access control. And a product pivot would be when you kind of switch the product and you kind of say, hey, we were building product X, we learned that one piece of that product is really important to everybody. So you just zoom in on that product or that feature and turn it into a whole product. Or you learn from the usage of your product that there's a different sort of product you should be creating altogether. Um, and that would be a product pivot. And a customer pivot would be same or similar product, different customer. And so we did kind of a combination of a couple of these pivots. I would say the customer pivot was probably at the core of what we did. So even though a CEO showed us the problem, the real buyer and user of our tool is folks who are trying to manage the access across the entire company. So these are essentially administrators of these tools. Someone like you at your company, it sounds like. And then at larger companies, it's usually someone in IT. And so the CIO all the way down to an IT manager or admin of these tools is our customer now. And so I would say the core of our pivot was probably a customer pivot. The product at the end of the day is not like completely, completely different. It is different, but the customer pivot is what kicked it off for us. And so one of the biggest things about pivots that people get wrong that I, I should definitely mention is like, if you just decided to change directions in your startup, that's not, there's nothing wrong with that, but please don't call it a pivot because it's more like a hop. You hop from one idea to another idea, right? So like, it's not a pivot then. It's just you changing directions completely for no reason that a right. customer like kind of pushed you into or that you saw from learnings from the customer. So the reason we can call what we did a pivot is because of the story I told mm. and how customers brought it to us. Our own customer development, our own research led us to insights that caused the pivot to be a real pivot and to happen. So again, I'm not against a startup changing directions at all. But I don't want people to get confused and think like you just randomly changed directions or you worked on the second idea you had that had nothing to do with the first idea or no learnings from the first idea mm. and call that a pivot because that's just hopping around. And like, <laughs> I love it. hey, like I said, it's right. fine. Like I've done it before, but I don't call it a pivot. I call it something completely different. We just moved around, right? We, we tried right. something different. A pivot is not trying something different. A pivot is rooted in research. It's rooted in mm. learnings. It's like, hey... We learned this and we needed to change direction. It's out of necessity. A hop is not usually out of necessity. It's out of opinion. It's out of a subjective like, hey, we need to change directions. What we're doing is not working. We don't know what to do next. So we're just going to hop. Here, it's like a pivot is like, we know what to do next. There's a bigger problem that we identified. And now we're going to go solve that problem. So there's a big difference between a pivot and a hop. And the difference is, is it rooted in customer learnings mm. or is it rooted in your own opinion, regardless of customer learnings? So I can't stress enough that, hey, that's okay. 
but please call it a hop or something. <laughs> like you're, you're a bunny rabbit hopping around, right? And when you're pivoting, you're literally like, hey, we're going, we're like here. Now we're going to go like that, right? And a hop is more like, we're like here. We're going to hop over to some other thing, right? So good. I've never heard of that before, but maybe it's because pivot is a sexy word. You know, like it's a startup. Like when you say to another founder or a VC, hey, I'm pivoting. They're like, oh yeah, okay, cool. But like a startup hop sounds risky, which it is. It's risky, right? Like hopping. See, that's a good point. A pivot is less risky than a hop mm. because you, it's rooted in learnings. So it's not like you started and you totally messed up and there's nothing more you can do there. That's a hop. Here, it's like we started we went pretty aggressive towards what direction that was good. And then we learned that there's a better direction based on what people were telling us. Mm, so good. I love that. That's the first time I've ever heard this. You should, I'm not sure if you tweeted this before, but you should. <laughs> I'm sure that would, that would go by for sure. I want to talk a little bit about knowing when it's time. Like maybe this is more advice for other founders as well. You know, they're doing research, they're getting data. When is the tipping point there? They're like, yeah, it's time to pivot. I know you also talked about creating that. It's time to pivot document that you and Marie created. But what's your advice for other founders? Like when, when like they've gathered the data, when do you tell them, okay, I think I think you have enough data to to say, hey, it's it's time. It's really is time to pivot. Yeah, it's a it's a good question and it's a loaded question, which you're good at asking. Uh, Sorry. So uh, no, no, it, it's what people want to hear, right? Like people should know, like have some kind of uh, heuristic or framework or something, right? I like to pivot when I think the problem that we're solving is not big enough, not good enough, not painful enough. It's something about the problem you're solving not being enough. Could be that it's not enough of a problem for the customer. That's a very common one, right? It could be that you can't solve the problem the way you thought you needed to. So the customer comes to you and says, hey, I need it solved a different way, right? So you know when it's time to pivot, when the direction you're going in is essentially not as potentially lucrative as another direction is what it really, really boils down to. So for example... If we spent more time on the enterprise search tool, we would have been able to make it a big business. We were sure of that. We had a roadmap. We have even things that we ended up building while we were pivoting just to have it because it was in production or it, like, it, it was started that we're very excited about. I'm still very excited about it. It's another thing I use every day, but we haven't shipped it publicly. And it looked good. Everything looked good. But then we found a buyer in a company who would want to buy kind of that solution to the new problem that we discovered as people were using the existing product. And so the timing of a pivot usually is happens too late and it happens because of some forcing function, like you're running out of money or you're desperate in some way. And that's fine. Maybe you'll call it a pivot because it's rooted in customer learnings and you pivoted, right? Like, you know, a really good example of this is Slack didn't pivot. Mm. they were building games. They had an internal tool. This is the story that was essentially some version of Slack and they hopped to Slack because they didn't want to build a game anymore. It wasn't a pivot per se where you could say, hey, Slack pivoted. You could say Slack changed directions and they hopped because they just didn't want to build a game anymore. 
I wasn't there. I don't know, but that's, there's no way that was a pivot. There's, there's no way. Right. So true. So the timing of it in their case was probably like, they got tired. Mm. They got tired of doing what they're doing. And that's totally fine. Mm. Right. So usually founders get tired of a direction mm. and then they either stop, they hop, or if they have core learnings, they pivot. Mm. In our case, we weren't exactly tired of the direction. We were all in on it. We had 24 different integrations. We were going after it. There were just data points that came to us that said this direction is harder and less lucrative than this other direction, which is easier and more lucrative. Mm. And it turns out it's not easier. <laughs> so that's cool. <laughs> uh, but like we felt like it was easier at the time. But one of the reasons is like this is a little bit of inside baseball for us. Like there is no buyer for collaboration tools inside a company. Mm. There are teams that buy those tools. Those tools get adopted. Ours was essentially a collaboration tool of some kind because it was a search tool across collaboration tools. But the thing is, there was no direct buyer. Mm. We ended up hitting a lot of companies with committees and those committees inevitably fail. Mm. And so in our case, like the timing was like, hey, we found a buyer for a problem that we can solve in a really unique and powerful way. And that buyer is, is really one of the main reasons that it was time for us to pivot. We found a buyer and we didn't have a buyer prior to that. And we were doing a bottoms up business that essentially that same buyer was blocking. So then we're like, hey, let's go make that buyer happy. The other thing about us is like, we had done a ton of research. So we always had that buyer in the back of our pocket. Like, hey, what are we going to do for that buyer? We were going to add some of these things that we do today as the full thing into the enterprise search product because we knew we needed to make the buyer happy. It turns out that just making that buyer happy is important to us. And in our case, like, you know, the time to pivot thing is really interesting in some ways because we're very good at figuring out how to build a better user interface Mm -hmm. for a problem. Our enterprise search tool still, we haven't seen another product imitate what we do. That could be because what we do is a bad idea. (laughs) You know, you could argue that, but we know it was a good idea because people were using it Mm. and there were a bunch of things we were going to do to make them use it more and have them get more value from it. So in our opinions, that's not true. It was a good product. And so we found a buyer who honestly has very inadequate products that they're using today. Ones that are actually not as usable as like Google, Mm. for example. And so we decided that there's a buyer and that buyer has a need. The need isn't just protecting company documents. The need is the tools they use are inadequate. And so we found even a broader problem that we can essentially go after for a long time for them, which is build tools that are 10 times better than any of the tools that they use. And that kind of like thing really excites me. And the time to pivot doc had some of those things in there right. of like, hey, we're good at this. The buyers we can go after really need our skill set and need better products. So I'm kind of on a mission at this point to build better enterprise products. And, and that's what excites me at the moment, just because I realize how inadequate mm. uh, those products are and how much opportunity there is to build powerful products that are much more usable than any of these products that most people use at work. And in particular, administrators. So IT people, security people, legal departments like that, that are administrators of these tools. Really fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. 
really one of the best answers I've heard about that because it is a loaded question. And thank you for entertaining me. It's a good one, though. It's a very good one. I want to shift gears and talk about more internal, uh, starting with the team. I'm guessing that it's time to pivot document is... It's a way to to share to the team, hey, this is why we're pivoting. Or how did you sell this this idea of, I'm guessing with the data, with research, it's like, guys, it's obvious. Our team really, really highly values our approach to research and customer development. And also we write a lot, especially when we have changes to make. One thing I'll say, though, that is unique and was really helpful. Basically, I've worked with our head of engineering for about 10 years. And so maybe about 11 now. And so he and I, and now Marie, are just able to be in tune with what we need to be building next and why. And he does an amazing job of taking things that Marie and I are basically pushing on, wanting to build, showing him, discussing with him, and really working with the team to make sure everybody understands why we're building what we're building. All you're really trying to answer In that, and for us, it was deceptively simple. We didn't actually even have to show the team the document or anything. We just had to talk to Steve, show him the document, and give him a good, like, hey, here's what's up. Here's what we learned. Here's why we're doing this. And our team basically didn't bat an eye for the most part. There are people that left because of this new direction simply because they were bought into the old direction or they didn't want to work on an enterprise B2B product, they wanted to work on a more consumery employee search kind of tool, which is fine. Uh, I don't think any of them said that explicitly to us, but their, their skill set and what we needed and their desires might have been different. There were a couple of people that I think I would put in that camp and that's totally fine. Like we were changing directions either way, right? Uh, these people weren't going to stop us from changing directions because it was just the right thing to do in our opinions. So selling the direction, I would say it's less about selling it and more about what you were getting at in the beginning, which is like, hey, here's the research. And here's the thing. When it's the right direction, the company gets more energized. Mm, That's good. Our company got super energized. Like there were some people on the team that have worked at banks as engineers, and they're looking at us like, yeah, yeah, this is better. This is way (laughs) better. This is way, way better. And we're like, okay, cool. I like that. Thank you. Uh, I'm still going to do the research, but yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Like, like, it's great that you're, you know, this is one of our uh, folks who got promoted to a team lead that I'm mentioning. And yeah, he worked at a bank as an engineer and he's like, this is way better. This is going to be big. Like, this is like, this is what we should be doing. And I'm like, awesome. (laughs) Like, let's do it. You're going to build all the crazy shit we need to build (laughs) to solve this problem. He's like, yeah, all right. So like, you know, that it's less selling and more as you said, just presenting the information and the reasoning. And if you're on board, cool. If you're not on board, cool. Like Mm. this is the direction we're going in, you know, and we'll transition people out smoothly if we need to and double down on the people that are like, yeah, this is good. Like I want to do this. I want to work on this or whatever. It was very smooth. And it was just because we were completely research backed, completely focused on what are we hearing in the market and sharing that with the team. And the team is, is sort of, very much on board with that approach to building product. If you're not on board with that approach to building product, you shouldn't work with us, right? And then that approach is very evidence-driven, very customer development-driven, very much like find the right problem to solve and then push to solve it in the best way possible. There are some pieces of our interface that were very hard to build. And those pieces are like the cornerstone of our demos. 
They're the things that, that customers love the most. They're the things that give me conviction to tell you our product is better than anything else on the market for these use cases today. I love it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And you're totally right. I was going to say also, I mean, if the data, if you've been gathering data and sharing with a team, when the pivot happens, it's going, it's going to be obvious to them as well, right? Like hopefully like they're... That's the best kind of pivot. I have a question from somebody from the audience actually around awesome. pricing. And it, yeah. it's something that you already, I mean, obviously with product pivot, have you started thinking about the pivot around pricing? Do you, you have that in mind already or is that something that still you're, you're rolling out? Yeah. So when we actually did FYI, one of the first things we did was a whole bunch of pricing research. I will give a shout out to my friend, Patrick Campbell, who I also do a podcast with. One of the reasons is we like talking to each other, uh, very similar to talking to you. And he's a pricing expert. He runs a company called ProfitWell. If you go to ProfitWell.com and find their blog, you will find better pricing information and knowledge than anything I can share with you today. That being said, the way we came up with the initial price points for the current product is like we used anchoring. So we basically determined that, oh, you know, depending on what Google plan you're on, depending on how many employees you have, there's just a certain willingness to pay some percentage of what you pay Google. And today our, our, our solution is very Google workspace focused. We have some upcoming integrations that are going to get us past that, which will probably enable us, not probably, it will enable us to increase the price. And so when it comes to like, more mid-market and enterprise sales, which is where we focused first with our business. We will do things for startups. In fact, you folks use it at product-led and you're on our startup plan. It's all about getting on calls with the buyer. It's all about making sure that this is a problem worth solving. And then it's just about making sure that they have budget for it and that they're able to pay you. And you typically just want to charge a lot more than you feel comfortable with and then just see what they say. Mm -hmm. You can always give discounts. And so even with our product pricing today, our aspirational pricing is $100 per employee per year. If you do the math on certain Google plans, it's about half to 75% of what people pay for Google today. And people are not having a problem paying that. That being said, there are some price sensitivity for folks who are smaller that are on smaller Google plans. And they also have less data and less like accounts in Google to manage. So we're willing to have different pricing for them. And these are things we're still exploring. But the big thing is you want to figure out as quickly as possible, what kind of anchoring can you do? Can you mm. anchor it to a budget line item? Can you anchor it to a complementary product? And the funny thing is even today with those price points, we're a heck of a lot cheaper than any alternatives. Mm. And the alternatives are not very good for doing what we do on top of that, right? And that's just what customers tell us. Because those alternatives have like suites of tools and lots of other features and haven't really spent enough time on the feature that we've spent a lot of time on or the capabilities we've spent a lot of time on. I love it. Thank you for, for answering that. I want to shift gear. Thank you for, uh, around the emotional piece to it. It's particularly how you dealt with the pivot personally, because I'm guessing it's an emotional part of it as well as like, yeah, can you talk a little bit about how you dealt with the, the pivot on a personal level? I mean, look, in life, one of the biggest pain that we have is attachment. And so when you pivot, you're essentially letting go of an attachment to something. It's usually an attachment to what you built before that. The only hack or the way around it is pivot really fast. And what I mean by that is don't spend a lot of time investing in the old thing, which is not really possible because when you need to pivot, you just need to pivot and you can't have the sunk cost fallacy idea where it's like, hey, what about all this effort we put in? What about all these things we built? Right. Thankfully, Marie and I and Steve, our head of engineering, don't have the sunk cost fallacy built into us too much. 
where like we're going to try to hang on to the past. And so in a lot of ways, like you have to learn how you as a human being react to attachment needs or problems and also how you react to the past and you can't have any regrets. So in a way, you know, there are a lot of tools to help you with this. One of them that's like just very famous is Jeff Bezos's regret minimization framework, which is, you know, you can Google it and you'll find lots of info about it. There's some YouTube videos. The general idea is when I'm 80, am I going to regret not doing this? And the way I looked at it personally, and this is not necessarily how Marie or Steve kind of looked at it, is if we don't do this pivot, am I going to regret it when I'm 80? And like, I don't usually use Bezos's framework because I have a pretty good relationship with the past and awareness about myself and all that. But like, this was pretty hard because I wanted to make sure we were making the right decision. And in a startup, there never really is a right or wrong decision. There's just action and execution Mm -hmm. because you just don't have time to think that hard about things. So Jeff Bezos's framework was really valuable because I was like, well, wait, I will regret it. Why? We found a buyer. We think we found an opportunity that's like a $10 billion type of opportunity. And people tell us that the customer is like dying for a solution. And we, we, we're sitting here with the ability to build it for them really fast and in a way that solves it better than anyone else. So then I truly feel like I would regret it if we didn't push for it and do it. Uh, and my backlight is off now. So now I'm, I'm darker right at the right time when I'm talking about the personal emotional stuff. There you go. Look what you did. <laughs> so, and like it died. So <laughs> I love it. I love it. I think that's cute. You get, you, you get, you get the emotional me now. There you go. <laughs> I love it. There's yeah. I mean, it's that, yeah. would you say it's a mixed emotion? There's, I know in your newsletter, you, you also say it's both joyful and painful at the same time. Is that that mixed emotion? Yeah, it's the mixed emotion because you're like, hey, I get to work on something new with this pivot or change directions, which is exciting. And you get to execute towards that. And then the part that sucks is like we built all this stuff. Mm. And if it had any value, it's even harder. And our stuff had a ton of value. And we even had a roadmap that we felt really good about in terms of what we could build. And so now we're not going to build that. And we haven't been building that for the last like six plus months. And I don't feel it anymore, except that we're probably going to shut down the thing that I know some people love and I love too, because we don't want to maintain it anymore. It makes no sense at the moment. These are ideas I want to come back to in the future. I'm always watching the market to see what people are doing in these areas. But at the end of the day, like it makes no sense for us to pursue it. Mm. And so that part is a little bit unnerving, you know, because it's like, well, if we only had like five more engineers, we would just keep working on that too. Mm. In our case, it's very connected to what we're doing today as well. Love it. I, I think the backlight is cute for last parting questions. Sure. Question I love asking is if you had one or two parting advice to founders or product folks, it could be anything we talked about now. It could be anything that you haven't shared yet, but if you had a parting advice to a founder or a product person who's listening in right now, what would those pieces of advice be? Yeah. I think it's really hard to be objective, but it's also really hard to ignore what the customers are saying. Not what they're telling you, not what their needs are, not what they say they want, but just what they're saying. And so the one factor I would put in here is oftentimes when you hear something from a customer or you're debating what to do next, oftentimes, this is pretty much the majority of the time, you want to lean into, you want to explore, you want to push on whatever you're fearing, because that will just give you a different perspective than the one you have right now. 
Because when you're in that mode where you fear something, and we tend to fear change as human beings, like just it's an extreme pain of ours to change. And everyone has different arguments about this. Like, oh no, I'm good at change. Like, like I, I change my clothes every day, right? I'm not saying they say that, but like they come up with reasons where it, they are comfortable with change. And yes, people are comfortable with change in few areas, but there are always areas where even the most change comfortable person, if you want to call it that, is totally scared shitless of change. And finding those things for yourself, the only way you're going to do that is like when you hear something from a customer and you fear it, or you have this like emotional, like pit of your stomach reaction. Those are the things I tend to dig into more because usually that's where the growth comes for our business, for ourselves, et cetera. So really pushing on what are you scared of is like, if I were deep in a convo with a product person or a founder, they're thinking of these kind of changes. I would probably be asking the question, like, what are you scared of? That got real there for a second. I totally love it. It's uh, it really is. I think there's this other, yeah, who said it? Like usually the hardest path or the one you're scared of is the one that will give you the most personal returns. Yeah. Return. I love it. One final question. Where can people find out more about you, about Nero? Uh, this is your call to action. Where would you want to send listeners to? Yeah. I'm on Twitter at HN Shah, H-N-S-H-A-H. Uh, fun story. That was the license plate of the first car my dad ever bought in America. Uh, and so that's why it's my Twitter handle. It's not at Heaton. I do own Heaton.com, but there's nothing there, but some newsletter opt-in I haven't touched, although I should probably do something with that. So don't find me there. And Nero.com is my current company. And whether you're a startup product person, IT person, whatever, um, we're working on finding ways to help you manage who has access to company docs and make sure that nobody gets access that shouldn't. So yeah, those are the couple spots, my Twitter and Nero.com because that's my business. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Hidden. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Ramley. 